0: everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Together we're exploring the connections between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. I'm your host, Sarah
1: Hayden. I fell into that trap for a long time in my faith where I thought, oh, I've got to be serious. And, and then I realized, you know, God is, God's the author of fun. God's the most creative being in the universe. and the spillover of joy and laughter in life is a part of how god designed us and the world and even in those dark chapters my own cancer my mother's cancer there was always humor happening too so it's it's always undergirding and present in the midst of difficulty
0: my guest today is the reverend nancy graham ogney Several years ago, Nancy began to organize a new church in a new development of Lake Nona, Florida, not far from Orlando. Today, Hope Presbyterian Church at Lake Nona is a thriving missional community that builds up people's capacities to make incremental change for good. In our conversation today, we talk about the holy cafeteria where her congregation worships, how experiencing cancer influenced her faith and her call to start a new church. Thank you so much for being here, Nancy. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Oh, it's it's great to talk with you. And Always. Um, I'm excited about um, hearing a little bit about your early journey as a person of faith. Um, I'm wondering if like you looking back at Nancy as a young child, um, you had parents who were Christians who mm-hmm. were active in the church and that was a part of your life and the life that you shared with your siblings. But I'm wondering if like you are looking back as a church planner, did you see, do you see continuity between Nancy back then and Nancy today? You know, I
1: really do. Although I don't know that I would have connected those dots earlier in my life. Um, faith was pretty important from the time I was about 10. My mother had a brush with cancer right before my 10th birthday, and that kind of woke me up to things that were important. And I started paying attention to her life and seeing how she responded to trouble and difficulty and hearing about her faith. And for at that point, really faith started to come alive for me. I started to pay attention to the things that I've been hearing my whole life, the stories that my parents had embraced and shared, the stories of faith that I'd heard in church and Sunday school. But it was a little bit like going to academic school where Mm. it was this other thing that was important, but it didn't feel personal. And it became personal for me at that age, about 10. Do you remember um, some of the conversations?
0: Did you have conversations with your mother about that and about her brush with cancer at the time?
1: Or was it something you observed happening around you? It was, it was something that I observed. And then we did talk about, it felt very rattling because back in that era, cancer was a death sentence. It was, it's not today. But at that time, it really was. So I immediately at age 10 was afraid that I was going to lose my mom. So went into this kind of quiet stage where I was more observing life and paying attention to um, larger things than what had been my focus prior to that. And hearing her talk about her faith and her peace in the midst of that cancer battle really caused me to sit up and pay attention. So I caught uh, Faith almost as a contagion at that point. And really by embracing her depth and love, that kind of carried me into this new, new phase where I got it. And it became important for me and understanding kind of a a personal connection with God through Jesus.
0: Hmm. I think that as, as you know, I have two um, young boys and I think that's such an interesting um, and important story for me on a personal level to hear you say that, knowing who you are as a pastor and friend and um, religious leader. I, I find that friends of mine who are also parents of young children we fear often those moments in our lives when something real and personal happens that that can be uncertain or whose conclusion is uncertain and that we fear that our child would bring to us questions that require us to articulate something about our faith mm-hmm. and you know for, for example I, you know i have an mdiv and and i I think theologically all the time. And and I have found those moments with Samuel, especially who's five and a half to be moments in which the faith gets real. But I think there's that real tension, even among people who are a part of faith communities that, oh, what will I say Mm -hmm. when something happens, an event happens in our family and my child asks me a question about where God is in this. So I think it's, I'd never really thought about that way that your actual coming to faith occurred in that moment, yeah. rather than the sense of you drawing away or that being a moment of conflict. It was the moment in which your faith began to come alive. Yes.
1: And and really watching my mother and, and my dad and how they responded to that, it, it wasn't doctrinal statements that they made. It was really how it impacted their life on the ground in that moment. Mm-hmm. Do you recall any of those um,
0: particular comments that they made or 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 things that they
1: were talking about with you i in fact, I just shared this with some folks this past week remembering my my mom was on the telephone with a friend and she had lost a leg to cancer, so the wow. the cancer had been Uh, a tumor that wrapped from her ankle up over her knee and they amputated her leg just above the knee. And it was a quite a while, several months before the prosthetic leg was ready. In those days it was a, a wooden leg and she was in a wheelchair for several months. And I remember I was in the den and she was around the corner. It was, in the era when telephones were attached to the wall with a twirly wire (laughs) that connected Mm -hmm. it. And so she was around the corner in her wheelchair and she did not know that I was hearing what she was saying, but she talked about to this friend of hers, "Um, I want my kids to be able to see that hard things are going to happen in life and that we're going to be okay. And that it's okay to make a hard decision That will be costly because you trust, you know, you trust that God's got you. So she didn't know that I heard that. And later somehow I conveyed that I'd gotten that. She said, Oh, you weren't supposed to hear that. But Hmm. I still remember it, you know, 40 years later. Wow. Wow. What an amazing story. Hmm. Do you
0: do you see a connection between beginning to embrace that? message from your mother and the kind of message you hope to embody today as a religious leader and a person of faith?
1: That's a great question. And I hadn't made that association necessarily, but I think it makes sense because I I saw my parents live it and my mom live it. And, and both of my parents really throughout their lives, I watched them Really embrace what I was taught. They, a connection with God, mattered to them, and and it affected how we related to the neighbors and how we handled trouble and difficult bosses and all that kind of thing. So I think for me, that's a huge piece of how we convey the gospel. Is watch my life, um, come alongside me, and let me live. Boldly, with fun, (laughs) with joy, with authenticity, as best I'm able in this broken frame, and come with me and see what gives me life and meaning. Yeah. Did you
0: ever think you'd be a church planter, or do you see how that evolved over time?
1: It actually never occurred to me that I would be a church planter because I didn't even know such a thing existed. Um, For me, church was always about the architectural box Hmm. and the wonderful people that inhabited it, but it never occurred to me that you'd start a new thing. Throughout my childhood, I started different new things. And even into my adulthood, whether I was building a home from scratch, helping to helping a church that was building from scratch, programming to actual building, um, or starting organizations, even when I was 11, 10 years old. But because church had been important to me, um, I would come home from church on Sunday nights, I would stand up and repeat uh, in front of the television set, I would kind of repeat what the pastor had said that morning in worship, wow. and my parents would often marvel marvel at how much I recalled of what the pastor had said. It's a great sign that when we're adults, a lot of times we we kind of zone out a little bit. <laughs> Kids are paying better <laughs> attention, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you'd be up there.
0: You know, just doing the sermon right after him and, probably. Y-
1: yes, exactly, because I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church and there were not even women deacons there. Everybody women taught Sunday school, but, but that was and my mother was a wonderful Sunday school teacher, as was my dad. Mm. But um, that that was not something that a, a woman would do would be to, to preach or to lead. I have a memory of being um, just back from Hong Kong, I'd served with Youth With A Mission in, in Asia and was looking for a job as a writer, which had been my background, um, and wondering about ministry and that kind of thing, and not finding the right fit. And one evening was talking with my parents and they said, um, if you could do anything, what would it be? So I'm 24 years old. I've been a journalist. Ministry and journalism have kind of woven back and forth in my life. And I kind of laughed and I said, you know, if I were a man, Hmm. I would be a preacher. Wow. And my parents both laughed kind of knowingly and they made eye contact and my mother said, we have often said that if you had been a son, you would be a preacher. Hmm. So that was totally outside my experience. And even at that point, not even a remote possibility.
0: Wow. What did it feel like to hear your parents say if you had been a
1: son? It, it felt um, in a strange way because I know that sounds... Um, negative to some ears but I really heard it as affirming mm. because I shared their Southern Baptist heritage and and they were not saying oh you know you're a failure because you're a female but re- more a recognition of if the culture permitted it we see this giftedness in you that's how I heard it. Mm. And it wasn't until after I'd gone to seminary, at a Presbyterian seminary, which I went to primarily because of its location. It was in close proximity to my family. And I was an only daughter and my parents were aging. And I thought, well, I wanna be close to my mom and dad when I do this. I wasn't sure, I wasn't thinking I was gonna be a vocational pastor. That really never crossed my mind. I just felt called to go to seminary. And it took a while and, and actually some Holy Spirit epiphanies for me to let go of old understandings about the role of women in ministry and to accept the possibility that God was calling women to ministry, not me, mind you, but women to vocational ministry. And then several years after that, that almost when I wasn't looking, I could look back and go, oh. I think I'm supposed to do that now. Wow.
0: I just recently there was an article on there's a friend on Facebook, a colleague on Facebook who was saying, you know, are there any church planters out there I can interview? And I thought most of the people in the comments were saying uh, evoking male pastors and mm-hmm. that 40 40% of the people new worshiping
1: community leaders are actually women. It is changing and we we had a we have a woman that has come to Hope as a guest the last couple of weeks who's a member of a Baptist mega church in Orlando, lives around the corner from Hope, a university professor. And she said, You know, I've just been realizing um, that my options to serve are more limited than I feel like I am called to. And mm-hmm. I've been searching for a church that has women on its pastoral team. So she came to us because of that. And this is somebody who's been steeped 40 years in a culture that really upholds male exclusive, exclusively male leadership um, who's sensing a call to something more. I don't know where she'll land, Mm -hmm. um, but, but even in, People who've been steeped in the church, there is a restlessness uh, among some. So
0: you mentioned fun, and we've been talking about um, something that was decidedly not a fun time to right. say, at least for right. <laughs> you and your family, and right. you know your mother. Um, so it's it's interesting that that you bring that up, and that's something that I I do associate with you, and having been. In your present presence at different retreats, that the sense that there's a link between fun and playfulness and your experience as a person of
1: faith. Yes. Yes.
0: That's not something we always think about, you know, or feel like we have permission to have fun or like church is a place to be serious and to be
1: still and to listen and not to play around. That's exactly right. And for me, that feels um, inauthentic Hmm. because it's not how I live my life. And I, I fell into that trap for a long time in my faith where I thought, oh, I've got to be serious. And, And then I realized, you know, God is... God's the author of fun. God's Mm -hmm. the most creative being in the universe and the spillover of joy and laughter in life is a part of how God designed us and the world. So let's live into that. Um, And even in those dark chapters, my own cancer, my mother's cancer, there was always humor happening too. so it's it's always undergirding and present in the midst of difficulty. How does that perform in your life, um, embracing that?
0: How do you guys have fun as a church at Hope at Lake Nona? What do you do to have fun together? What, or is it something that happens
1: naturally? I I think it is kind of natural. There is, we have... Embedded in the context of worship, what we call news of the family. That's not an original title from me or from us, but some churches might call it the announcements and they want to get them out of the way mm-hmm. in advance. But for me and for us, this is a way of looking at how we grow deeper with God and others and reach wider to serve and share God's love of the world when we're not in this room. So, kind of upholding these things. Uh, during the course of worship so it's going to spill out after we leave and we have lots of laughter in worship as part of that we have some uh, different folks that lead that that have great senses of humor and there's a lot of banter between people in the congregation and the people who are leading that and even during worship uh, you know during the sermon during the music we have just lots of laughter the moments with children it's part of who we are. So we even describe ourselves as a fun and imperfect community of Christ followers who desire to grow deeper with God and others and reach wider to serve and share God's love. Mm-hmm. So that that fun is part of the imprint that we have. And folks are not going to miss it. They're going to come in and figure it out pretty quickly. And it's not for everybody.
0: Have you ever had people who have felt like, Oh, this was too fun for me. <laughs> or yeah.
1: Like was it wasn't serious enough. Yes, I I do recall one guest that I, I got really tickled uh, <laughs> one Sunday in worship. And I it just took me a minute to kind of catch my my breath. And I noticed that she didn't come back after that. And she had commented prior that, you know, I just really want to be serious about my faith. And it could have been unconnected, but I thought, well, this probably isn't the right, right fit for her. Great human being. <laughs> We're probably not the right church for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? I mean, that's an interesting concept in general, this idea that there are better fits in a religious community for people. Mm -hmm. Um, And we step back and look and say, like, on the one hand, we don't want, like, we know that accommodation or the sense of like not being moved or being challenged in our faith can, some would argue, produce, like reaffirm what we're thinking and not necessarily help us to grow. Right. But there's also that sense of like being in a community where your gifts come alive and maybe you feel like you can be more authentically who you are. Mm -hmm. There's just like, we we've all been in groups of people or spaces where it's just clicked for us. Hopefully we've all been in, whether it's religious or not, we feel like, all right, like here I am Mm -hmm. and I can be who I am here.
1: Yes. And one of the things that, that I love about our little congregation is we, we have several different ethnicities and a variety of ages. Um, we, we tend middle age, but we've got uh, newborn to in the 70s. But we also have a mix of folks who identify as LGBTQ. Um, and there's one woman in particular who had come into the church, dynamic, beautiful faith, from a a non-denom tradition where she lived closeted. And her faith was robust and real, but she felt like she couldn't be authentically who she was. And this was in a a church in a different state. When she kind of came out to that congregation, she was dismissed from leadership and asked to leave um, and carried those wounds for several years. Um, when she came to hope, she, her, her wife was, um, in need of a kidney transplant. And at one point she and I talked because I've, I've kind of morphed in this conversation, uh, significantly over the last 20 years in actually in response to my own desire to be biblical. Um, and to be faithful to to scripture and the spirit of God, that's kind of led me to be more open to LGBTQ people and they're embracing their faith. So I was moving along in that conversation and we agreed that she would share her wife's need for a kidney to the congregation, knowing that there could be consequences that people could grow deeply upset about that and Say that we were anathema, that we were not genuine Christ followers because we would allow this anathema, not being the kidney
0: need, but the fact that a woman's wife would stand up and be a part of the Christian community, the mm-hmm. same sex couple, same gender relationship.
1: Yes, uh, a woman okay. who was in the worship band and mm-hmm. uh, often liturgizes in our church, and and so somebody that has a leadership platform that we would knowingly allow a gay woman to have leadership. Mm-hmm. So we prayerfully agreed. It's like, okay, you know, I think where are you going to go if you don't go to the Christian community with the need for a kidney, <laughs> yeah. um, with the most serious need that you have, where do you go? So we kind of with fear and trembling um, said, okay, share it with the congregation. And, you know, this is, this is who you are. This is who we are. It's who we believe we're called to be is to be a safe place for all people and a loving, accepting, affirming place for all people. Um, So let's do it. Even though there may be ramifications, we're, we're diving in. Yeah. And so she stood and shared that. And it was just a beautiful thing to behold in this congregation where I think often in the church and probably at that juncture in our church's life as well, there's a kind of a don't ask, don't tell Hmm. phenomenon that happens. And so while we talked loving all people, it was probably a little bit of don't ask, don't tell. And in that experience, people kind of heard her need and saw her because they knew her as a woman of beautiful faith. And it kind of reframed that whole theological conversation about inclusion. We didn't, to my knowledge, have anybody leave over that. Hmm. Um, but increasingly, this woman has become um, more open, and we have been more open. We've we've kind of said uh, this this is who we are is affirming and inclusive, and if that doesn't fit for you. Um, there are lots of great churches out there, and we're probably not the right one for you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you all have had um, experienced um, a community tragedy. Yes, at, um, in Orlando in
1: several years ago at um, the Pulse nightclub. The Pulse nightclub. That's exactly right. Uh, for maybe a year and a half, it was the the largest mass murder on U.S. soil until the Las Vegas shooting happened. Yeah, um, but forty nine human beings were were killed in that, and and that was probably another moment where we 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 had folks in our congregation who had friends that were there, um, so we. Acknowledge the heartbreak of that. And and a a woman in our church who is an artist painted a painting. Um, All of our church signed it. uh, Condolence. And we took it to the memorial, the Pulse Memorial in downtown Orlando. And recently, a few of us were at the Pulse Memorial for a vigil after the kind of commemorating the Parkland shooting in February of 2018 and that painting is on in kind of a prominent display as part of the permanent exhibit at the pulse nightclub Hmm. memorial so uh, for us that just feels like a way to say to people who've been wounded by the church we love you um and we want to be here for you
0: Hmm. you um You have a unique way, I think, as a pastor of walking a community through and and being sort of porous and transparent about your own faith in a way that's allowed the church to be reflective, responsive, and helpful in situations that have happened um, out in the larger community, such as the tragedy at the Pulse nightclub, Mm -hmm. the shoot mass um, shooting there. Um, You also have an experience being on sort of the other side of the communication strategy mm-hmm. as a
1: as a journalist mm-hmm. and a photojournalist for the AJC, right? Yeah. So I was, I, I I was uh, mostly a sports writer for the AJC out of one of their branch offices. And then for a suburban chain that's now defunct, I was a sports editor and and took my own photos. It feels like such a compliment to hear that it's photojournalism. (laughs) I
0: I was a journalist who
1: took my own pictures. but um.
0: (laughs) It's an interesting thing to think about, like that you were on both sides of that. And I wonder if there are lessons that you've learned in the ways in which we receive information, we disseminate information and the way that we've shaped people and communities responses to events, that whole mix of, um, the human experience and how you see now as a pastor, um, where you want to be along those lines. Because you're not necessarily the out front, like, I don't, I don't, I don't see you as someone who's the first to show up at the protest necessarily. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that you wouldn't show up at a protest, but that you have this way of the the long view Mm -hmm. of like holding relationships and people together through important events. Um, it's sometimes events that separate and divide us. I think that's probably
1: true. And while social justice is something, I the longer I live, the more the more I believe that social justice is interconnected with our call as Christ followers. So I might show up at a protest. Yeah. Though that's though, as you say, that's probably not going to be my first recourse. But as an example, if you'll allow me to backtrack here for a second. Yeah. Um, after the Christchurch shootings, in which fifty people were killed at two different mosques in New Zealand, um, our we were at a we call it Bible doing, which we borrowed from Bob Goff um, rather than Bible study. I like that. That's Isn't that so awesome? Good. It's, uh, it's so good. We, we loved it and immediately adopted it when we read that from him. But we were talking about how distressing it was that these people had been targeted because of their faith and wondered how do we show solidarity to them? We've, we've sent cards, for example, after the Sikh killing and after the killing at, uh, mother Emmanuel in Charleston, we signed, cards we sent to the Newtown mayor to to people just to say we we're far away but we love you and we care. So what do we do to these people that are in New Zealand and someone in that bible doing said why don't we just reach out to the muslims in our own neighborhood. Hmm. So we signed a card and sent over to the Islamic Center of Central Florida and to to speak our our support and love as neighbors. We're not saying you're the same as we are, you wouldn't say we're the same as you are. But we can love you, so that's the kind of uh, expression that will, is more typical where we're going to express love in the midst of of challenge, um, rather than necessarily holding picket signs or that kind of thing. It's that has its place as well, but probably not my natural go to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So on the the journalism question. Um, a piece of that perhaps being on both sides is what I was trained in in journalism is get to the point right away you you find the important thing and lay hold of that and then knowing that the latter part of your story may get cut out for space you you got to keep what's important up front and that's been helpful in a lot of different ways across my life but everything from sermon prep to personal interactions where you try to focus on what's important. And then also I think my greatest strength as a writer was focusing on individuals, kind of writing feature stories about men, women, boys, girls. um, So that kind of calling out their personality and helping them to be expressed through my language. And... I, I think that kind of bears out as well in, in how I love people and how um, we as a congregation love people by holding up the individual and helping them to kind of shine.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it comes through. You guys actually have a couple of unique um, scholarships, like the way that you use money as a community mm-hmm. collectively. And, and this is something that the Christian church has always done is shared it's recorded in acts this idea of the early church people sharing what they had in common with each other um you guys have a couple of um scholarships that you offer and grants you offer that have to me exciting they they've They've formed some important relationships, Mm. both within the church and outside and connected to people outside the church. Would you tell us a little bit about
1: um, those efforts? I I will. Uh, The first one that you're referencing is something we call Hope Scholars. And we really prioritize the priesthood of all believers and that it's not more holy to be a pastor than a plumber or a teacher or a doctor whatever you do do that to the glory of god do that um, as a as a witness to the world as a piece of that we've tried to highlight education and encouraging people to be all that they're called to be so every lent for the course of the seven weeks of lent we invite free will offerings and occasionally we'll have additional things that we do. We have several times done what we call a yard give, kind of clean out your closets, bring it to the church. If you see something on the table that you want, take it. There's no obligation, Uh, but you might want to just drop something in the plate for Hope Scholars if you're inclined to do that. We've done dessert auctions and kind of things like that to generate some money for for Hope Scholars. Um, But the idea is that anyone who attends Hope at least once a month, or has a parent who attends at least once a month, is eligible for a college scholarship through this fund. And we ask them to write a one-page essay, because we don't want this to be an overwhelming amount of work for people, Mm -hmm. especially when we have no idea how much money we're going to have in the pot, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, it could be for twenty five dollars. You raise it <laughs> each year. exactly. Yeah. exactly. We yeah. clear it out every year. So, um, a one page essay that will intersect their life and faith. It might be how will you seek to live out uh, your faith in Christ as a on the campus, or what about this career or this major uh, is an intersection for you with your faith? And we also have one question that is not explicitly faith-based so that if a kid, for example, a a young adult whose parent attends hope is not a particularly faith ish kind of person. We don't want them to pretend or to feel like they have to, to say some certain phrase in order to, to get generosity from the church. Mm. We try to have one question that they can answer honestly without pretense. So it might be, why do you think it would be beneficial to the greater community for our church to support you in this effort or something like that? Yeah. And then if you write an essay, you're going to get money. Mm. Uh, We we divide it evenly among in-house applicants, although there is a reading panel who will gauge whether one essay, not one human being, but one essay, is kind of stands out in that, in that group. And that essay writer may get an additional $100 mm-hmm. uh, above what everybody else gets. But then there is one equal value scholarship that is given at an at-risk high school in Orlando with whom we share some prehistory. So we will go on senior awards night and present a scholarship to a student that the, the administrators have chosen from that graduating class And it will be at least as much as the people at HOPE got. A couple of years, we've had anonymous gifts to that totaling $5,000 a year. So, And we have that again this year. So we will present a scholarship for $5,000 plus to a graduating student at this at-risk school. Mm -hmm. And we share a little bit about how we're connected by a church that closed across the street, sold their property to the county, to expand this school. And we have been blessed by that community. And so we come back to that community to bless back. Um, so in, since 2012, we have given 31 college scholarships wow, totaling $33,000 and some change. That's a big chunk of change for a new church. It, it is. <laughs> and some, some people have been very generous with that. So, um, That's largely due to the generosity of a few folks that really have a vision for that.
0: Yeah. It strikes me that you guys don't do everything. Like you don't have this sort of mission creep where there's a million projects that the church takes on, but that you really focus on the ones that seem to be the most fruitful. Is that intentional or is it just sort of happened over time? Well,
1: we we do try to avoid mission creep.
0: Or do I have that wrong?
1: (laughs) You know, I I don't know that it's wrong, but I would say that we are, we have a few things that recur like Hope Scholars and the the Help Your Neighbor grants uh, that we have but we are open. I kind of, my default is I want to be a church of yes. Hmm. Uh, I have been a member of a church and a participant in churches where kind of the default answer is no, we're not going to do that. We, we have limited funds, we, you know, kind of a scarcity model. Yeah. And so one of the things that we've tried to embody from the beginning is we we start with yes, and we will we'll adjust it as we need to. Um, but if somebody comes in and says, "Hey, there's this there's a congenital pediatric heart association that they're making hospital kits for children. What if we do a collection for that?" Yes, hmm. let's let's look at a time that we can do that. Uh, there's a homeless ministry that's feeding folks in downtown Orlando. Could we provide? Yes. We can. Um, can we provide a breakfast for the teachers at the school where we meet? Yes, hmm. we can do that. So it's um, we, we try to balance it out so that we're not just hammering people all the time with give money to this or bring items for this, but to, to space it out enough so that it's not overwhelming. Though sometimes you, you learn by getting that wrong, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Looking back at those first few months and maybe first year of starting the church, I'm wondering what you remember about about that time and what sticks out to you.
1: About the very earliest days of the church? Uh, Yeah. A a lot of what comes to mind for me is the the groundwork before we launched. I was grateful that our presbytery was really the one that envisioned the need for a a new worshiping community in Lake Nona near the Orlando airport. This community was a rising ex Nilo with hospitals and research centers and a college of medicine that was newly founded at the University of Central Florida. And they've been watching this area for a while and thought, this feels like it might be the right moment. Will you prayerfully consider. So we formed a team of what we called ambassadors from the church where I was serving at the time, which had been a new church development of our Presbytery, Community Presbyterian Church in celebration. And 12 people from that church or from a couple other local churches, but primarily from Community Pres, uh, came alongside and we went into Lake Nona to Kind of read the community. Part of our vibe was we don't want to just start something in order to to start a new thing. Mm-hmm. We want to listen for is there a need, and how is the gospel being presented now? So we did spiritual disciplines together. We um, grew in relationship with each other because many of the people that were on that team, even though they had attended the same church or were in the same presbytery, did not know each other. Hmm. and got deeper connections, spent time in the community, and visited all the congregations that were already there. Not to be um, kind of spies, but really, really plumbing. What is, how is the gospel presented now? And what we discovered is that there were a lot of really good churches there already. And in the midst of that, there was a, a little bit of what might be considered interchangeability. They were mostly of a non-denominational stripe with heavily male leadership, a very, um, a commonly attractional model where you have a really groovy pastor and a groovy band with the lights and the drums and the guitars. And, you know, it's, uh, it's all God uses all that, but but they were all pretty similar in that way. And we thought it feels like like how I've described this is if we had a a brass quintet, it would it would have been marvelous of churches. <laughs> but we thought the strings are missing. Mm-hmm. I, I think we our our team felt like we we think we can bring the strings. There's a a reformed voice that isn't there. Um, that we think offers something important, so unanimously sensed, and the presbytery concurred unanimously that that God was calling us to do this new thing, and I do believe that a missional approach, where you're focused less on get people to come to us, um, but really more of a be, be a witness in the community, is not. Natural to most people who have been steeped in the church, it's a growing edge. Even even now, to say we're we're going to do stuff out there and invite your unchurched friends to do to a baseball game, uh, to uh, some service activity that we're going to do, so that they can come see us up close. Let us love them a little bit. Let them see that we are fun, that we're normal, (laughs) Um, mostly outside of the pastor. Most of us are normal, Um, and and that we are a safe place. And I think for for many people who grew up in the twentieth century U.S. church, that still feels a little different. Um, We are used to if we build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've had to kind of counter those obstacles routinely.
0: Yeah. And you actually, like speaking of building it, you have continued to worship in the Holy cafeteria. <laughs> um, I've heard you use that phrase before. Uh, how many years in is it that you all have been worshiping? In?
1: We, we've been there seven years. Okay. And, Part of our vision is not to buy property or build a building. Yeah. One of the things, having lived through a new church plant in Celebration and walked through three building programs with them and building ministry from the ground up, uh, along with a team there, I I was an associate. Yeah. Um, I realize how often we keep thinking the building is going to be the answer and it becomes inadvertently a ball and chain. Mm. And it becomes this thing then that drives the ministry. We have to have more people because we have to pay the mortgage. We have to keep the lights on. We have to replace the water heater. And, and so that becomes the framing element of your existence. Because we are not interested in buying property or building a building, we are able to give freely into the community, giving away 20% of our offerings, identifying projects that we can support, you know, raising an ark for Heifer International, um, doing things for the school, where even paying rent to the school blesses our community because that goes into the coffers of the school. Hmm. Because we have not been focused on property and buildings since 2012, we have been able to give away more than four hundred thousand dollars outside our doors. Wow! If if we were if we had to worry about a mortgage, that would never have happened.
0: Yeah. How much would you do? You think you would have spent on a mortgage by then? Have you ever calculated that out?
1: I I have not, but I did price at one point before we launched office space in Lake Nona, um, which is a burgeoning fairly affluent community. And just a storefront office at that point would have been $40,000 a year. Okay. Um, that doesn't include furniture, phones, lights, um, computers, any of that. Yeah. And so by not, not doing that and working remotely from homes and in restaurants, um, we were able to save all that money just on, on rent.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. I've got to ask, do you ever really pine for one aspect of a building or is it just completely, do you ever have a dream of like, if I could just take this one thing of having a building (laughs) or are you like, no, I do not want
1: (laughs) it. I I think mostly I'm, I'm happy to be rid of it. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and yet there are things like when we are Gathering our our discernment council, which has been the precursor to a session, when we have gathered in restaurants, it's oh, it's not necessarily conducive to having really uh, careful conversation. With <laughs> staff coming up, and you know, who got the poppy seed salad? You know, it's um, it's not really easy to do that, and and you have to be careful about what you say where. Mm-hmm. So th- there are times. For a situation like that, that I think, oh, for the the privilege of having a building where we didn't have to pay extra <laughs> to yeah. be there, um, that that's a definite advantage. Funerals and weddings, you can usually figure something out, uh, funeral home or another church. But um, mostly, I think it's it's you know shedding that exoskeleton has been. A gift.
0: Hmm. Sounds like it.
1: I've got one final
0: question for you, Nancy. Um, it's one that I've asked other people on this podcast, which is which um, story in scripture is particularly meaningful to you right now?
1: The one that has been lingering with me for a long time and has been foundational, actually, to the forming of hope, but it it still has not lost its energy for me is the passage in Luke four where Jesus goes into the hometown synagogue and opens the scroll of Isaiah and reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to declare the favorable year of the Lord. And that passage, I think it embodies Jesus's mission statement. He identifies the purpose for which he's been sent. It's one of many places where he does, but that's kind of an encapsulated version of how he understands the scope of his ministry. And it comes with a cost. Because the people that hear him initially are, ooh, this is awesome. I've never heard such amazing teaching and how eloquent and how beautiful. And then when it doesn't fit exactly with how they've come to understand it, um, when he challenges some of their most deeply seated understandings about themselves and about their faith, they actually lead him out to kill him so that quickly it shifts. So there's this moment in which Jesus identifies his purpose and call. And he also is being truthful and challenging to the establishment. I don't necessarily love conflict, but I am often willing to just call out the establishment in part because I have been the establishment. I have mm-hmm. I have lived being the one who knew all the answers and knew exactly how everybody else was supposed to live out their faith because I was certain about everything and therefore I knew what they were supposed to be certain about too. So that calls me to account and calls me back to some kind of touchstone for what I'm doing in the world, not to create the kingdom or bring the kingdom, but to embrace it. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Thank you so much. It's especially um, poignant to hear you say that um, in 2019, the world Mm. swirling about us (laughs) and remembering um, what it was that um, the scripture, the story that Jesus held um, true to his heart and his vision. Mm. Thank you so much, Nancy, for this conversation and um, for the role that you're playing in in shaping the church uh, these days. You're an inspiration.
1: Thank you, Sarah. Right back at you, sister. appreciate you so much. (laughs) Appreciate
0: you too, Nancy. Um, This has been a treasure of a conversation. You can catch up with Hope at Lake Nona Church online at hopenona.com. You can follow Nancy on Twitter at N-G-O-G-N-E. Special thanks to the forward-thinking leaders of the Presbyterian Church USA who first launched this movement, and to the Presbyterian Mission Agency and leaders like you. Thank you for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is Martha Ames Sanders. You can visit our website, newchurchnewway.org, and see stories and photos of the humans involved in this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.